is good to see each of you this morning. Oh, there we go. There. Let's start over. It's good to see each of you this morning. I'm glad you've come out. You know, Clay has been giving me a hard time since February of 2010. I guess things just never change. I'll tell you what. But I love him anyway. You know, everybody in life has searched. Let me see if I can get this thing working right. Is there a button I need to push other than the power button? There we go. Okay, not pointing in the right direction. I'll have to get that down. Everybody at one point or another in this life has searched for something. Whether it is something that we've lost or something that we're really not even aware that we need to have. But we all have searched for something. We may not even know what we're searching for. We may just simply have that feeling that we need something. Something isn't exactly right in our lives. Something is missing. Now I'm not talking about some kind of a uh, direct operation of God upon us, but as we go through life, God has instilled in us a sense of ought, a sense that we understand there is something greater in the world, a sense that we feel like we need to worship something. Any culture that has ever been discovered in the world has been a culture of some kind of worship because God has instilled that in, in us as a natural reaction to being alive in this world. And so we may understand that there are some things in our lives that we're not completely happy with. There are some things that are missing in our lives. Some years before she died, the well-known actress Elizabeth Taylor had thousands of dollars worth of jewelry stolen from her home, stolen from some type of a uh, safe that she had. And she was asked by a reporter, Did you cry? Did you cry over having that uh, stolen from you? Elizabeth Taylor said very simply, she said, I don't cry for things that do not cry for me. That's a good statement, isn't it? I've never really thought about that before. But we worry about a whole lot of things in this life that has no care for us, period. We worry about our finances. Now, that doesn't mean we should not be good stewards. That does not mean we should not be cognizant of the fact we need to work. We need to take care of our monies. We need to be responsible. We need to have those worries or concerns in that area. But we should never be so concerned with the physical and the material that we give up the spiritual. Because you know what? They don't cry for us. They could care less what happens to us in this world. They are simply objects that exist in this world. They cannot truly bring to us what we really need. There's a famous story about a drunken man that was standing under a street light and he was diligently searching for something. And as he searched for whatever it was he was searching, a police officer came by and said, what is it that you're looking for? And he said, I lost my keys. I'm looking for my keys. And so they both got down on their knees and under this street light, they were searching for these keys. And finally the policeman said, are you sure you lost them right here? He said, no, I lost them over there, but it's too dark to look over there. 
See, we might be searching for something, but we have to be searching in the right place, right? We have to be searching for what's missing, but in the right areas. Just because it's clearer or easier to do something here and more difficult to do it back there, that doesn't mean we still should not do that. You know, Solomon is famous for not doing that exact thing, for not looking in the right place. Solomon asked some questions. And he asked some very fair questions. He wanted to find out, why am I alive on this earth? And why am I here? What's my purpose? Well, the problem with that is, Solomon knew why he was on earth. Solomon knew what he needed to be doing. But somewhere, somehow along the way, that slipped his mind. He forgot. And in the process of forgetting why he was here, in the process of forgetting what he was supposed to be doing, he all of a sudden had this void in his life, an emptiness that he could not fill. And so here's what he did. After finishing what we could refer to as an experiment, he came to some conclusions. He came to the proper conclusions. And in fact, he said this, Ecclesiastes 12, 13 through 14, For God shall bring every work... Or excuse me, let me, let me back up. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole of man. That's the whole of man. Now those uh, the phrase duty, or the word duty was added by the translators to help us understand that better. But I prefer the original. For it is the whole of man to fear God and keep His commandments. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it be good or whether it be evil. He found that all of those things he had been doing, all those experiments he had been uh, carrying out, we might say, and we've heard the phrase, wine, women, and song, right? That's about encapsulates what Solomon had been doing. He was trying to find through the creature what he needed to do in life instead of asking the Creator. But he finally determined. He found what he had been doing was just vanity, he said. Emptiness. Void. He still had that void. He still had that emptiness. He knew he was missing something. And so what I want us to do this morning... I want us to learn from one of the worst events in the history of God's people. In the history of the Israelite nation, one of the worst things that they ever did, and they did a whole lot of things that were bad. I want us to learn a few things. They were looking for something, but they were looking in all the wrong places. They were not looking where God needed them to look. Genesis ends with the death, the burial... Of Joseph. Notice what Joseph said to his brethren. He said, Genesis 50, 24 through 26, he said, I die and God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land unto the land where he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And Joseph took an oath of the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you and ye shall carry up my bones from hence. So Joseph died being an hundred and ten years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. 
Now Joseph died in Egypt. He was buried in Egypt, but he had confidence that the Lord would visit the children of Israel, lead them out of that uh, foreign nation, and he would go with them. His physical body is what he was talking about, right? The Spirit had gone back to God who had given it. But he wanted his physical body also carried out of that strange land to the land where God had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then the history of God's people begins with a statement in Exodus. Exodus 1, verse 8. Now there arose up a new king over Egypt, which knew not Joseph. There arose a new king. He didn't know Joseph. He wasn't appreciative of the great things that Joseph did for the nation. Remember, he brought them through that great famine. You had seven years of good times, and you had seven years of bad times, and Joseph was put second in command over the whole nation. But there arose another king. He didn't know about Joseph. Now, did he not know anything about Joseph? No, that's not true, is it? He would have been well aware of Joseph. He didn't care about Joseph. He didn't care about the great things that Joseph did. But notice the tyrants down through history. They only care about themselves. And this is a tyrant, right? This is a man that would no longer allow Israel to enjoy the benefits of Egypt, yet he would throw them into a position of slavery. They would be beaten in order to execute all the male babies would be given, and many would die under the extreme burden of the works thrust upon them. Yet God still required something. He still required that they be obedient, right? He still required that they search for Him in all of the right places. Not in all of the wrong places. And here's one thing we need to always keep in mind. At no time, did God forget His people? He didn't send them off into Egypt and then just let them survive on their own. See, there is this theology known as deism, right? There is a, a greater power and He created the world and He created all that is in the world and then He just kind of left us to our own devices. The God of heaven doesn't do that. The God of heaven always leads and guides. But these people were in Egypt. But they were down there for a specific reason. In fact, two promises were made concerning where they were. First, the people would be oppressed in a foreign nation. That was one, that was one prophecy. Genesis 15, 13 through 14, And he said unto Abram, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge, and afterward shall they come out with great substance. Secondly, Israel was to become a great nation while in that foreign land. They were going to go down, they were going to be afflicted, they were going to learn to rely upon each other through that affliction, that was the purpose of that. They were going to learn how to be obedient to God though they were being afflicted and they were going to become a unit of people, one. You learn that 
under like oppression, don't you? Under like oppression. And while they were down there, God said, they're going to become a great people. Genesis 46, 2 through 4. And God spake unto Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here am I. And he said, I am God, the God of thy father. Fear not to go down into Egypt, for I will, for there I will make of thee a great nation. I will go down with thee into Egypt, and I will also surely bring thee up again. And Joseph shall put his hand upon thine eyes. You're going to go down to Egypt. Don't be afraid to go down there. Take your substance with you. Take all of your family with you. You're going to see your son again. And while you're there, I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to be a whole lot of people numbered like the sands of the seas, right? Like the stars in the sky. Now, Jacob didn't see that personally because it's going to be 400 years. But those are the reasons that God allowed them to stay in Egypt under bondage so they could learn to work together. And while they were there, they would become a mighty nation. Millions of people would come up out of Egypt. And God would bring them out of bondage through the hand of Moses and the plagues that we read about in the Bible. Notice as they were coming up out of the land of Egypt, Moses was leading them. They came to the Red Sea. Moses stretched out his rod over the sea. It parted. They crossed on dry land. After the last person got across, Moses was instructed to put his hand out again. The the staff was placed forward and the seas closed up on those chasing them. And then they were free. They had their freedom, right? However, almost immediately, and this brings us up to this terrible event, almost immediately after coming out of bondage, they begin to question God. They begin to question His ability to care for them. They begin to murmur and to complain. That's what the book of Numbers is about, right? They cannot be satisfied with anything. Exodus 19.20 is the account of Moses ascending Mount Sinai. He goes up with his faithful servant and he receives the words of God written upon a stone tablet. And as he was receiving that, what was happening down at the foot of the mountain? Well, Israel began to complain. They began to complain about Moses. Where'd he go? He's been gone for some time. See, they began to look around. They said, we think we're missing something. They weren't missing anything except for faith. They were missing that. But can you find faith in a golden calf? But that's what they wanted to do. They told Aaron, build us a calf. Put us a calf together. Exodus 32, 2 through 4. And Aaron did that. Now the problem with the way Aaron and those other people were thinking, how are you going to find what you need through the actions that they displayed? It's not going to happen, is it? See, they thought that they were going to have comfort from that golden calf. But what did it bring? It brought compromise. They had compromise instead of comfort. How would that come about? Because they ignored God. They had ignored the God that brought them up. They were focusing more on the man Moses than they were on God. Notice what they said, For as for this Moses, the man who brought us out of Egypt. Who brought him out of Egypt? Wasn't Moses? It was God. God brought him out by the hand of Moses. 
But God stayed with them the whole time, right? A, a cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night. He never left them. They were brought out of Egypt by the hand of God. But they had forgotten what life was like in Egypt, right? They had forgotten that, Numbers 11, 1 through 6. They began to say, oh, you know, we're out here and, and we remember all of the things that we had back there. Well, what was back there? Slavery? Murder? Mistreatment? Yeah, we all need more of that, don't we, in this life? But do you see, you get away from God, you allow our minds to get away from God, and that's what we begin to think. God has equipped us with short memories in this life for a reason, right? We can move past hurtful things. We lose people in this life. God has equipped us... With short memories in that, we can move ahead. <clears throat> we can continue in life. Not that we forget our loved ones, but the hurt kind of eases off a little bit, right? We're able to continue. We can move past sorrows. And we can still find enjoyment in this life. But see, the problem is we have to find it in God. We can't find it in compromise. Our comfort isn't going to come from compromise. See, Israel had focused on the outward instead of on the inward. They needed to look at themselves. They needed to say, where have I fallen short? If I feel like I'm coming to services, I'm not getting anything out of the worship service, well, maybe I'm not doing something correct, right? I've got an aunt. And I use this example, it's pretty good. Been married eight times. She's been married eight times. I think Elizabeth Taylor was married eight times. Finally, I told her, I said, now look, maybe it's you, right? Maybe it's you. Can't be all of these eight other men. Maybe it is you. You're the only common denominator, right? See, Israel needed to look at themselves and say, maybe it's me. Maybe my mind isn't focused on spiritual things. They wanted a calf. They wanted a God. They could feel it. They could touch it. They could see it. See, that Moses had left them for a period of time, and then all of a sudden their faith just wavered. They wanted something to be able to grab a hold of, physically speaking. And so they convinced Aaron, and by the way, Aaron didn't put up much of a fight against their request. They convinced him to build a calf, make one out of gold, in Exodus 32 verse 4, He had the gall to make this statement, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. It looks like to me that he presented this idol with great pride. Boy, look, I've built these gods for you. This is what brought you out of the land of Egypt. Go up and touch the thing. You can see it with your eyes. You don't have to have faith. That's a problem, isn't it? That's a problem in this life. See, they were never going to be content to follow an invisible God. Of course, we know the end of the story. They would ultimately not enter into the promised land. They weren't able to have the faith that was required for that. They allowed it to wane, and and they looked for that which they could touch and which they could see, and, and they just weren't able to take up God's mantle and cross over that river and go do what He asked them to do. 
And because of their weak faith, their behavior was one of contempt toward God. They weren't reverent toward Him. They presented themselves as worshipers of God, but were they really? What's the application? We have to have some kind of an application in today's world, right? It doesn't matter what they did. They're dead. They're gone. Unless we can learn from it, right? Unless we can make some kind of an application. They were trying to worship God in a way that they thought or they felt or that they wanted to be right, but it wasn't. Does that happen today? It's rampant in the world, isn't it? What, over 7 billion people in the world and how many of them are New Testament Christians? It doesn't even move the scale, right? It's much like during the great deluge of Noah's day. You know, I've studied the the great flood of Noah and, and there are different varying opinions on how many people lived on the earth at that time. And some people believe there were as many people on the earth then as there are now. I don't know if that's the case. It may, may be. How many people were saved, right? Eight. We're always going to be in the minority. But we still have to live right. We still have to do what God has asked us to do. We still have to worship the same way that He has asked us to worship. We can't rely upon relics and icons and, and idols. Look, idolatry is rampant in the world. Let's go to the Eastern nations especially. Full of idolatry. I was in India and, it, and there are Hindu people there. About 85% of the over 1 billion people are Hindus and, and they worship something. It's not all the same things. I saw a man place a rock in front of a, a little fire he had built while I was in India back in 2008. And uh, the, the gentleman I was with asked him what it was. He said, it's my God. It was a brick. It was a brick. He used that same brick to build a house with. Right? You cut down a tree, you, you carve an idol, and you use what's left over to cook your food or to build your home. Right? We're worshiping the, cre- the creature instead of the Creator. I was standing by this great temple that was probably about the size of this pulpit except 15 feet tall. And it had a little door on the front of it. And there was an idol in there and it was beautifully carved. And and along the top of the the edge was beautiful carvings. They had thousands of gods that they worship. And I was looking at at the craftsmanship of that and it was amazing. And so I was preaching to the village there they never even heard the name Jesus Christ. Didn't even know who He was. And so I began to talk to them about their idols. And, and on the front of that door was a lock. And so I asked them, I said, what's the lock for? There were bars. You could see through and see their idol. I said, what's the lock for? Is that for your God, to keep your God from escaping? Or is that to keep someone from stealing your God? Either way, it's not very powerful. And then I began to ask them about the other carvings on the top that depicted all of these gods, and they would bow down and worship and burn incense to them. And I'd say, I'd say, who put them up there? Well, whoever built the, the temple put them there. I said, do you ever see them communing with each other? Do you see them moving around up there? No. I said, well, if they wanted to come down, how would that have to happen? Well, we'd have to bring them down. I said, what kind of power is that? Then they began to think, right? I made that no different than this pulpit. It's no different than the pews on which we sit. It is the creature, not the Creator. Now people change things in our worship, right? They change things. And if we have to invent an image or create an ordinance 
by which to worship God properly, then we have erred from the truth. But people are quick to point out these innovations. They're aids. They don't, they don't really impact worship, right? It helps us to keep our minds better on God. Well, did this calf help the Israelites to keep their minds upon God better? Well, when we look in Exodus 32, verse 7, they were corrupted. They weren't more righteous. See, we can't do that. We can't institute those things. God has directed us on how to worship properly. And we must follow that direction. We must look for God in all the right places, not in all the wrong places. Israel had the heart and spirit of compromise, loving to have some of what God said, but not all of it. See, we just can't do that. And their actions brought with it compromise. But it brought something else. It also brought guilt instead of glory. They didn't find glory in that calf. They didn't find glory in in uh, ruining what God had asked them to do. Israel had become corrupt. They had become corrupt in their actions. Look, it is, it's always glorious to worship God. We can worship God every single day, as many times a day as we want, as long as we do it properly, right? God revealed to Moses what was happening. He said, they're, they're doing some things down at the foot of the mountain. And he told Moses, he said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to destroy all of them. I'm going to start a new nation in your name. Now, wait a minute. How would that have affected us today? What if God had destroyed all of Israel at the foot of that mountain and started over with Moses? From who was the Lord to come? Judah. Tribe of Judah. Moses was from the tribe of Levi. See, the promise stated that the scepter shall not depart from Judah until Shiloh or the Lord shall come, Genesis 49, verse 10. This was as much a test for Moses as it was for the people. How was Moses going to react? Was he going to show that he loved God, loved his people, and loved his promises more than he loved being the head of a nation and having his name remembered throughout time as the leader of that nation? It was a great test for him. But it was one, of course that Moses had already passed back in Egypt. So the people were going to go through another 38 years of traveling in the wilderness. Would Moses look for God or would he compromise? God said that these people were stiff-necked. They were stubborn. They were too stubborn to obey Him. They cared only for themselves. And of course, like many people today, they focused on the right now, not anything into the future. And instead of glory the glory of eternity with God, they didn't. They had guilt, right? But they're like a lot of people today. They craved something else. They craved the physical over the spiritual. They had to have that, right? God has mercifully demonstrated to us the exact way to find Him. He sent Jesus into the world to deliver the message of salvation. Let's accept that, right? Paul told the Romans, he said... Now to Him who is able to establish you according to my gospel in the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery, kept secret since the world began, but now made manifest. See, that's the thing about a secret, isn't it? It's no longer a secret when someone tells it. 
This was a mystery. From the very beginning of time, God knew what He was going to do. But it was not revealed until Christ came into the world, Galatians 4, 4, at that appropriate time. Now it's no longer a mystery. We have it. We've got the answers. We've seen the end of the book, right? We win if we do what God asks. He told the Galatians, He said, For you're all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. How do we get into Christ? We need to be in Christ if we want those spiritual blessings. How do we get into Him? We have to be baptized into Him. Does that mean that baptism is more important than faith? No. Is it more important than repentance? Not at all. Is it more important than confession? Absolutely not. But it is just as important. It's just as important and we need to do that. That's the final step into salvation. That's the final step into Christ. We cannot look for God at the devil's table. That's what these people were doing. We have to look for God in the right places, not in the dark. See, Israel was looking for God in all the wrong places. They were giving themselves to a golden calf. How was it manufactured? They took the earrings from their very ears and gave them to Aaron and he made, a, made an idol. Didn't have any power. They demonstrated compromise. They had guilt on their hands. But one of the things that it brought that they were not counting upon was it didn't bring deliverance. It brought destruction. Destruction. But that's what always happens when we do not do what God asked us to do. They thought they would realize salvation in that golden calf by worshiping the creature. There's no salvation there. That's something that Paul warned the brethren about in Rome, right? He said, Romans 1, 21 through 25, those who engaged in practices such as he listed, he said because though they knew God, they did not glorify God. They, they weren't ignorant of God. They knew all about God. But they were not thankful they became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. He said, professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of God, the incorruptible God, into an image. That's exactly what these people did. They took the magnificent glory of God and turned Him into a cow. That doesn't make sense. Turned Him into something over which man has dominion and power. That doesn't make sense. At the foot of that mountain, they had sacrificed to this idol. At the foot of that mountain, they had manufactured and fashioned a beast with four feet. And then they got up, our text says, to play. Paul goes on to tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, 6-8, that that means they got up and they began to engage in immoralities that they had learned back in Egypt. They began to behave like the pagans and the heathens. He said, Neither let us commit fornication as some of them committed and fell in one day, three and twenty thousand. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 8. As Moses and Joshua descended that mountain, Joshua said, Wait a minute, I hear a war going on. Moses said, No. You hear singing. You hear singing. You hear reveling. And when they came down, Moses saw what was going on and he was so upset. 
He threw down those tablets of stone. Those people were not ready to receive the written Word of God, though they had received it orally, uh, Exodus 19. They were not ready to receive the written Word of God because their faith, in essence, was gone. Didn't even have it anymore. That happens today. We think we can gain salvation in doing what we want to do. Have you ever noticed that when some man creates an organization that we don't read about in the New Testament, they are placing upon God the way they want to be saved instead of the way God says we are to be saved. That's just the truth of the matter, isn't it? They may be sincerely uh, have a great sincere belief in what they're doing. That doesn't make it right. We can't place upon God directions. He gives us directions, right? People give up the written law when they do that. It's just like what they were doing at the foot of that mountain. They want to do it their way. Paul warned, 2 Timothy 4, 3-4, he said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fable. See, often in the world, in which is the case a great vast majority of the time, people want to hear a certain thing, right? They want to hear that their marriage and their divorce is, is scriptural. They want to hear that they can imbibe alcohol as long as they don't get, quote, drunk. They have itching ears, and they want those ears scratched by someone that says, you're right, don't worry about it, you'll be fine. Does someone love you that says that? Does a parent love a child that says, go ahead and touch the hot stove, you'll be alright? No, a parent doesn't love that child. Does a parent love a child that just allows them to live however they want to live in their own home and, and never discipline them or try to train them in the proper way? No, they don't love that child. See, Paul says, don't go to people that will just tell you what you want to hear. Go to people that will tell you what God said, and then they'll show it to you in the Bible. Listen, never take the word of someone when it comes to our salvation. Always look it up in the Bible because we make mistakes and our souls are not something that we ought to take lightly. They were looking in the wrong places, and instead of realizing salvation, they received punishment. What did Moses do? Ground up that calf into dust and made them drink their God. But that's better than what's going to happen when Christ comes in the end. He's coming with a flaming fire. He's descending with vengeance upon those that do not know God and obey not the gospel of Jesus Christ. 2 Thessalonians 1, 6-9. Jesus described it in just a little different way. Matthew 13, verse 30, He described those that are not obedient to God as tares that come up amongst the, the wheat. And the servants came out and said, Someone sowed weeds all in our wheat. You want me to go out and pull them up? He said, No, if you pull up the weed, you'll also pull up the wheat. Let it come to maturation. We'll go harvest it. And then we'll separate it. We'll put the wheat over here in the good pile and we will throw the tares in the furnace and burn it up. What's he talking about? That's a parable, right? He's saying at the end of time we're going to be separated. The good on the right, the, the evil on the left, the evil will endure eternity in hell. And there's no escape from that. When we look for God, we have to do it in the right places. And we have to do it in the right way. Because if we don't, the same things that will happen to us that happened to Israel. And what I mean by that is ultimately we'll lose our salvation. We're not going to be destroyed by 
the tribe of Levites, right? They don't even exist today. Or at least they don't exist in any way that we can confirm it. But we can lose our salvation. We won't receive comfort if we compromise. We will not receive glory if we're guilty. We will not receive deliverance if we have to be destroyed. That's not what's going to happen. When we come to God, we have to do it on His terms. You see, that's not what Israel was doing. They were not coming to God on God's terms. They wanted to come to God or they wanted God to come to them on their terms. See, we can't do that. Paul, we go back to Galatians, says we're all the sons of God through faith. Now, he was writing to Christians. We look in Galatians 1, the very first couple of verses. He was writing to Christians, not people that were not Christians. He said the Galatian Christians were all the sons of God through faith and obedient faith because as many of them as were baptized into Christ put on Christ. Through faith, repentance of turning my life around, I'm not going to live the way I've always lived. I'm going to live for God. I'll make that good and great confession that leads me unto salvation, Romans 10.10, and then I'll be immersed in water. And that's just the beginning. That's just the beginning, right? When we come up out of that water, we're going to walk in a new life, Romans 6, 3, and 4, and then we're going to live like Christ would have us to live. Sometimes we make mistakes along the way, and God has made preparation for that. The second law of liberty, if we confess our faults in whatever way we need to, whether publicly or privately, we repent of those things, we stop doing it, God will forgive us. And we'll walk in the light again, 1 John 1, 6-9. If you find yourself this morning looking for something, and you really don't know what it is, or you can't put your finger on it, but now you realize, either I've never obeyed the gospel, or I have not been faithful. You can change that. We can come back, and we can be in fellowship with each other and with God. If you need to answer this Lord's invitation at this hour, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.